It's a winter day in 1955 in the city of Leadville, Colorado. And a woman named Evelyn Furman is outside, bracing herself against the frigid mountain air. She's struggling with the old lock to the town theater, a theater that she owns. It's called the Tabor Opera House. Inside, the walls are made of brick and they're a foot thick. But it doesn't help with the cold. In fact, it's even colder inside than outside. But Evelyn's got to get in. Because earlier, Evelyn got a call from two songwriters visiting from out of town, visiting from New York City. They write popular songs. They write operas and ballets. And they want to visit the Tabor. She let them in the stage door and they went on the stage and she kind of went into the audience and was just observing them, waiting for them to be done, getting whatever they were, had come to see or do. Evelyn sits down in one of the theater's worn velvet chairs and watches these men. They're looking up at the private box where the theater's original owner and namesake would have sat. And she said it grew eerily silent and they were just standing there still looking out at the theater and she perceived that they were actually taking in like sort of the ghosts of the Tabor. She said it was very strange. It was lasted a very long time. And then suddenly one of them exclaimed, I've got it, I've got it. And then they beckoned her to come. They shook her hand and they said, thank you. We got exactly what we came for. And they left. And the very next year, the Ballad of Baby Doe premiered at the Central City Opera, which is not too far from Leadville. Today, Colorado is a hub for music and performance. But long before anyone appeared live at Red Rocks or made the Fillmore shake, there was the Tabor Opera House. The Tabor not only staged high dramas, tragedies, tales of star-crossed lovers, it also inspired an opera all its own. I'm Dylan Therese, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. This episode was co-produced with Visit Colorado, and we get to meet the ghosts of the Tabor after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
Nearly a hundred years earlier, in 1882, the seats of the Tabor Opera House are filling up before the evening performance. Women are squeezing their enormous taffeta skirts into the narrow seats. Miners show up in their buckskin coats with their freshly scrubbed hands. The gas lamps flicker. The fine Italian tile gleams. And up in a private balcony box is the most powerful and wealthy man in Leadville. The former mayor, now the lieutenant governor of Colorado, Horace Tabor. His wife, Augusta, is out of town, visiting family back east. And as the performance begins, Horace is distracted. He fidgets in his seat. He strokes his gigantic black mustache. He passes the time by looking up, taking in the sight of this beautiful opera house, which he himself has brought to the city of Leadville. He wanted to build the grandest opera house between Mississippi and San Francisco. It was kind of his vision at the time. This is Sarah Day. Today, she is the executive director of the Tabor Opera House. And the operation and restoration of the Tabor is actually run by two Sarahs, Sarah Day and Sarah Edwards. And the Sarahs are going to take turns here, telling us the Tabor's story. Here's Sarah Edwards, the president of the Tabor's board of directors. Horace's intent with building the opera house was, um, you know, to make Leadville a fine town, you know, to make it a first-rate city where people would come here and stay here um, and not just come and prospect and leave. Leadville was a mining town, a place where people could come with absolutely nothing and potentially strike it rich. This was Horace's story. He and Augusta, a no-nonsense practical woman from New England, had come to Colorado on a covered wagon with their infant son, just before the Civil War. And for 20 years, they scraped out a meager existence, moving from mining camp to mining camp. And eventually, they settled in Leadville. And together, Augusta and Horace created a general store, and they uh, offered all kinds of wares and items to the miners. So they were kind of mining the miners, so to speak. On the side, Horace did a little bit of what's called grub staking. And that was, you know, lending out materials for a cut of what the miners may find. And two German miners uh, struck it rich. And really, that's how Horace got his first bit of wealth. It wasn't gold that they had found. It was silver. Quite literally tons of silver. Practically overnight, Horace became unimaginably wealthy. One of the richest men in Colorado. The state's silver king. Augusta wanted them to be conservative with their new fortune, to save, to invest. But when Horace tasted wealth for the first time, all he wanted to do was spend, spend, spend. He was ambitious. He wanted to make a name for himself in politics. And he was generous. He funded hospitals, schools. He put in the town's first telephone company. He also set about building a very fine opera house. No expense to be spared. Back in the day that the Opera House was built, there wasn't even a train that came all the way here. So when you're walking through the Opera House and you're seeing like the bricks and the woodworking and the tile that came from Italy, you are also knowing that they brought these things over mountain passes up to 10,200 feet elevation, um, like with burrows and on wagons. 
And so the rough and tumble mining city of Leadville and the theater became a hub of culture. It hosted operas, vaudeville shows, musicians. It attracted talent from all over the country, even all over the world. Oscar Wilde is one of our most noted performers. He was doing a tour across America, but he was so game to go hang out with miners and drink with them. And they actually went out to a mine and took him down in the shaft and served him a banquet that he said was um, first course whiskey, second course whiskey, third course whiskey. A circus came to town and would refuse to perform because it was too cold outside. So they opened the opera house and there's stories of like women sitting in the third row of the theater being terrified that the tigers on stage were going to like come out and, and grab them. And we also still have the loading doors on the side of the stage, which we affectionately call the elephant doors because they are large enough for an elephant. But the design of the opera house had other peculiarities, little quirks, you might call them. Like the hidden walkway that connected the opera house with the hotel across the street. In fact, Horace Tabor himself often used this walkway to meet up quietly with a young, fascinating, and scandalous woman named Elizabeth McCourt. Not really sure specifically when and how she met and caught Horace's eye, but she certainly did. Elizabeth McCourt was 24 years younger than Horace when they met. She was just slightly older than Horace's adult son. She was fresh off of a divorce and a noted beauty. She had shiny blonde curls that piled messily on top of her head. And at some point, possibly because of her big, flashing, doe-like eyes, she had acquired the nickname Baby Doe. They started a very discreet affair but it certainly began to evolve to be a little bit more uh, public knowledge, at least in the Leadville area. And then it became extremely scandalous, one of the most uh, scandalous affairs of the nation at the time. Horace and Baby Doe began to carry on their relationship openly, meeting up in hotels. And Baby Doe would disguise herself, often wearing a mysterious black veil, as if that would fool anyone about what was going on. Augusta was humiliated. In late 1882, Horace filed for divorce without even telling Augusta first. After a few months, Augusta agreed, although she tearfully told the judge at their hearing that it was not willingly. And naturally, the public sided with her. I mean, who wouldn't? Horace. Come on, Lord. But by then... Horace was in Washington. He was filling a temporary vacancy in the U.S. Senate. The papers ridiculed him, saying Colorado was filled with morally rotten and wicked men. But it didn't matter to Horace. He and Baby Doe went ahead and had a lavish wedding in D.C. The invitations were even printed on silver. She wore a $90,000 diamond necklace that was Queen Isabella's. The Queen Isabella diamond was the diamond that Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand from Spain sold to fund the Christopher Columbus expedition. And the president of the United States at the time came to their wedding, Chester Arthur and his entire cabinet. But it's noted that none of the women or none of the wives attended that wedding because it was such a scandalous affair. For a while, Horace and Baby Doe were happy. Their scandalous marriage had indeed ended up torpedoing Horace's future political career. But who cared? They lived in luxury. 
They kept flocks of peacocks as pets. They had many mansions. And they even had two daughters together, one of whom they named Silver Dollar. It was rumored that the diaper pins had diamonds on them. You know, just think of the most rich and in-your-face couple. I mean, Kardashians kind of come to mind in today's era of just kind of living this really opulent lifestyle. And Baby Doe loved it. And that's what Horace loved, too. So just as Horace and Baby Doe are relaxing into this new luxurious lifestyle, we're going to need to step away for a second and talk about silver prices. Because... The thing is, at the time, silver's value was kind of artificially inflated. So much silver had been found in the West that by the end of the 1880s, prices were crashing. And in 1890, under pressure from wealthy mine owners, the Treasury began buying up millions of ounces of silver every single month just to keep the prices up. But in 1893, that policy was repealed. And overnight, the bottom fell out of the silver market. It cost more to mine it than it did to sell it. And so all of the wealth he had accumulated in silver that hadn't been transferred already into cash was worthless overnight. In a flash, the Tabers became essentially penniless. They sold nearly everything, including the Tabor Opera House. They retreated to the mine. Horace went back underground with a pickaxe and a shovel hoping to strike it rich once more. But lightning didn't strike twice. Someone actually tried to help them out. Horace's first wife, Augusta. Unlike Horace and Baby Doe, Augusta had taken her share of the silver fortune and invested it. She'd put it in companies like the Singer Sewing Machine. And she had become a millionaire. But, uh, you know, Horace and Baby Doe were a little too proud to accept that charity from Augusta, and they never did accept a dollar from her, even though she offered money back to them. Horace died in 1899, leaving Baby Doe behind and distraught. She chose to go and basically hermit at his at his mine in this one bedroom prospector's cabin and lived there. I mean, she was only 44 or something when he died. So she lived there for almost 35 years alone. She would wander the streets of Leadville in kind of a manic state often talking about uh, days of yore and her beloved Horace Tabor. And she had her feet bound and wrapped in newspapers of the time to provide warmth because she couldn't even afford new shoes. In 1935, Baby Doe Tabor was found dead in her mining shack, her body frozen. In 1933, just a couple of years before Baby Doe's death, a young woman from Minnesota named Evelyn Furman arrived in Leadville. She was only supposed to be there temporarily. She was a college student with a summer job to work as a nanny. But she fell in love with a local miner. They married, they settled down, and she got a house just a short ways from Baby Doe's run-down mining shack. Baby Doe was often seen guarding the shack with a shotgun, gunny sacks on her feet, talking endlessly about her former glory days. Evelyn became quite fond of Baby Doe and was devastated by her death. 
Her memory stuck in Evelyn's mind for decades. By then, the opera house had changed hands a few times. And in the 1950s, news spread around town that its owners were planning to tear it down to put in a parking lot. Evelyn knew she had to do something. And so she convinced her mother to give her her life savings of $10,000 at the time, which was uh, her down payment to purchase the Tabor Opera House building. Evelyn became the guardian angel of the Tabor. As one journalist put it, she was tour guide, bookkeeper, carpenter, painter, and janitor. She collected and preserved historical artifacts from the theater. And to stay financially afloat, Evelyn sold Maytag appliances out of the bottom floor. So in 1955, when two famous songwriters called her up looking for inspiration, Evelyn toured them around the opera house, introducing them to the ghosts of Horace, Augusta, Baby Doe. They were so taken in by the absolute drama of the whole affair, the love triangles, the Tabor's meteoric rise and tragic fall, that they turned the story itself into an opera called The Ballad of Baby Doe. It has since become one of the most popularly performed American operas. After Evelyn's death in 2007, the family eventually sold the Tabor to the city of Leadville. And today, the city is working with a preservation society on a massive campaign to restore this opera house to its former glory. You know, the building looks quite grand from the outside, but when you go inside, it's like drooping and it's cracked and paint has peeled away. You're in a relic of history and it's both extremely charming and, um, you know, obviously in need of a lot of repairs. It is an enormous task. It needs more bathrooms. It needs new lights and sound equipment. And it still definitely does not have enough heat. For that reason, they currently only open for shows and tours during the summer when it's warm. At least once a season, somebody in the tour of like five people will be like, um, I'm actually like an opera singer and I studied the Ballad of Baby Doe in college as part of my thesis. Would you mind if I just sang it right now? Because it would be so incredible. And they'll stand on the stage of the opera house and they'll sing a song from the Ballad of Baby Doe. It's a really magical thing when it happens. The Tabor Opera House is opening soon for their summer season. You can find more info about shows and tours on their website. We will post a link in the episode description. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. There's something special about summer in Colorado. From the rush of exploring to the serenity of relaxation, everything shines a little brighter. Colorado, come to life. 
Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.